Welcome to HealthCast, the heartbeat of health IT. We're your hosts, Sarah Seibert, Catherine McPhail, and Melissa Harris. When we think of medical conditions and diseases, COVID-19, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and other more common sicknesses are some of the first to come to mind. But did you know that there are about 7,000 rare diseases out there that impact about 30 million Americans? And of those 7,000 rare diseases, only two heritable diseases currently have gene therapies approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Although there are many people with these many conditions, rare diseases have been hard to study and find treatments, therapies, and cures for. There's generally little commercial interest in rare diseases, which means not as many clinical trials and therapy development efforts occur. But given the significant number of people suffering from rare diseases, FDA and National Institutes of Health have recently launched a private-public partnership to figure out how gene therapy applications can help. Today we're going to break down this initiative known as the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium, or BGTC, and what it means for the future of rare disease research and treatment, as well as how the consortium's model can help us streamline therapy development from clinical trial to commercial development. Let's start with the origins of the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium, and that begins with the promise of using gene therapy as a potential solution for rare diseases. Rare diseases like cystic fibrosis, Huntington diseases, spinal muscular atrophy, and some inherited types of cancer, and many other rare and inherited diseases stem from a specific gene mutation. In fact, 80% of rare diseases can be traced to mutations or changes in a single gene. Because of this, many biomedical experts believe that gene therapy can serve as a great way to address rare disease conditions. However, like we mentioned before, rare disease studies and treatment development are hard to launch and gene therapy development for rare diseases is even more complex, time-consuming, and expensive. On top of that, it's hard to create gene therapies for rare diseases because of limited access to tools and technologies lack of standards across the field, and the one-disease-at-a-time approach to therapeutic development. Amid these recognized obstacles, FDA and NIH launched the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium. We have a couple of the minds behind the consortium here with us today to talk about it more, but let's go into what it is a little first. For one, the consortium's goals are to uplift the promise of gene therapy for rare diseases and to develop a standardized therapeutic development model that leverages a common gene delivery technology known as adeno-associated virus vectors, or AAVs. With these goals in mind, FDA and NIH hope that the consortium can create a more efficient approach to specific gene therapies, saving cost and time. As we mentioned earlier, one of the program's main goals is to make adeno-associated virus technology more accessible to a broad range of diseases. AAB is a versatile viral vector technology that can be engineered for very specific functionality in gene therapy applications. This technology can be used in a wide range of clinical applications in multiple diseases due to its unique biological and biophysical properties. FDA's Center for Biologics, Evaluation, and Research, Director Peter Marks, will dive deeper into how the consortium is leveraging AAV technology to build out clinical stage experimental therapeutic strategies. Gene therapy relies on being able to get uh, the genetic material of interest into cells so that that cell uh, can correct the defect. 
early uh, efforts used some viruses that ended up having deleterious properties for one reason or another. Some of them caused alterations in the person's genome, their DNA that were problematic. Others just didn't get into the cells well enough. And it turns out that adeno-associated virus is a type of virus that it's lucky enough that it doesn't seem to cause any bad disease in people, and yet it's able to be tricked into carrying a genetic material into cells. That trick is that you can take out part of its gene uh, genes and put in the, your gene of interest and still then package it up and have it be a virus that can get into cells. So it's, it's turned out to be a reasonably good gene therapy vector. It's not perfect. We're still looking for better, but for the moment, it's, it's kind of the, the best that we got. So by, by using this, uh, we're able to use, take any number of smaller uh, genes and uh, really try to fix them. Uh, and that's an important thing because many rare genetic diseases are caused by single gene defects. And if you can fix that gene, you can make them, uh, you can make that individual better. Given the known potential of AAVs, you might be wondering why they haven't been more widely researched or applied across the medical treatment space, especially with rare diseases. Like we said before, there's a little commercial interest in studying rare diseases, so a lot of rare disease research is siloed or lacks support. PJ Brooks, the program director in the Office of Rare Disease Research at the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, sees great potential for streamlining the clinical process and ultimately developing more AAV treatments. I think there's a lot of really promising data in, in many different diseases, and we see it at these annual meetings, of the, you know, the gene therapy meetings. It, it, that's, that's almost what, what sort of pushes us to trying to do this, because you keep thinking, you know, why isn't some of this great animal data, why, why isn't there a clinical trial started? And that's the question I keep asking myself when I go to these various meetings. And, and the answer is it's actually quite difficult and expensive to start up a clinical trial. I think there's, there's a huge amount of data out there that could well be translated into patients. And there's a lot of potential of just taking the process that has been used for other diseases and, and swapping in different therapeutic constructs and to me, that's that's the real excitement here. How can we just make this process faster and easier so we can use this technology that 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 basically works for other diseases and just apply it to more? You know, this is a different situation than if if you see a disease that no one's ever heard of, and say say a disease that's not a genetic disease. You know, it's not obvious where you'd start. It's hard to think about how you go and develop a treatment from that. But when you know it's a single gene disorder, you know what the cause is, you know what a therapeutic strategy is, and you know it could be done, but it isn't getting done because of these you know, hurdles. That's where I think there's so much potential in this program. The consortium is looking to build upon the different pieces of work that have been done around rare diseases and AAVs. That growth isn't necessarily in reinventing the wheel medically, but streamlining clinical trials and processes to accelerate the promise of AAVs across different rare disease use cases. The idea here is that in the gene therapy field, particularly around manufacturing, but also around other aspects, 
there has been a lot of reinventing the wheel. When you think about it, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of rare diseases. And to reinvent this process over and over again is a real waste of effort. If we had a playbook that people could refer back to, it would hopefully facilitate getting treatments to individuals more rapidly. A lot of the innovation in gene therapy occurs at academic institutions, but those academic institutions don't necessarily speak to each other about how they're going to go about the manufacturing process. They don't really have a standard way of going about the development. And that means that it's not infrequent that, that uh, something is shown to be potentially beneficial in a clinical trial, but then when uh, they go over the investigators code to try to transfer that process to a commercial entity, there's tremendous challenge in the technology transfer, potentially because of differences in methods and differences in scale up. So the idea here is if we put together a, a, a set of protocols for how you try to make your gene therapy in the first place so that when you actually have it made, it could potentially more easily transfer to either contract manufacturing organization or a commercial sponsor. And if we had kind of a playbook that said, okay, you've got your manufactured product, here's how you characterize that product, here are some ideas about how you might study that product in a small number of individuals, that might help the field along instead of having this reinvention every time. Currently, lack of standardization is obstructing and slowing down the gene therapy development process. Dr. Brooks believes that introducing protocols could benefit researchers, FDA regulators, and ultimately patients and their families. When someone's going to start a, or ultimately start a clinical trial for a gene therapy for a rare disease, the, the people I talk to a lot are, are often the parents and family members of people with the disease. And, you know, I, we, we look at what is involved in going from, you know, starting from scratch with an animal model all the way to getting an IND that would allow you to, an IND is an investigational new drug approval that would allow you to actually start the clinical trial. You have to get this from the FDA. Different companies, different sponsors, make these applications quite differently and there's no sort of uniformity there so we're trying to lay out as a process that that every that's clear to everybody and can be followed and also to try to make the process as efficient as possible and also when you make the clinical batch of aav that you're going to give to people how do you test it and characterize it to be sure it's safe what we found from meetings that we've had at NCATS at NIH a couple of years ago is that, that different companies and different sponsors analyze their, their vectors in different ways. And again, you might think, couldn't we have like a standard set of tests that everybody does? And if you do these standard tests, then you should be good to go. So these are the kind of things that we'd like to, to explore in the context of the BGTC to just make it a more streamlined process. And I think that would benefit really everybody. You know, we, we think in particular about the families of, you know, patients with these rare diseases and there's no, there's no commercial interest. But if we, we could sort of streamline the whole process, 
that would actually benefit the entire gene therapy field, including you know companies that are trying to develop gene therapies, you know commercially, and would also help the 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 regulators at the FDA because they would they would know what to expect and they would see better IND packages and applications and it would make their life easier. So I think if we do this right, we can we can benefit everybody. At least that's my optimistic view of, of, of how this might work out. As the consortium works to create new tools to streamline the gene therapy development process, Marks and Brooks say that data management is essential for success. Leaders are leveraging existing data to inform treatments and streamline capture of data to ultimately improve patient outcomes. Marks will dive deeper into how the consortium is doing this. Yeah, so there are two types of data. <laughs> Let's talk about that there's an incredible amount of manufacturing data that can come from the various sensors and controls that go along with a manufacturing process. Being able to make the most out of that data, potentially using artificial intelligence and supercomputing, may be very important in, in finding ways to refine the manufacturing. So that's the manufacturing piece. Then there's the other piece, which is patient level data, the data that we get from clinical trials and trying to leverage and get the most out of clinical trials so that we don't miss opportunities to get important information about how patients respond to these treatments. And there, uh, it's, it's a matter of how much we can capture and how easily we can capture it and how conveniently we can capture it. Uh, and so some of this is now starting to think about whether we can use more remote assessments on individuals so that we can get more data. It might not be the same types of studies that you can get in a hospital laboratory, but you can potentially make up for some of that by having more simple assessments that could potentially be done by biosensors uh, that someone can use at home. And that's just, again, just one example of a variety of things or assessments that could be conducted by a local physician rather than someone in an academic center. So those are the kinds of ideas of trying to leverage data from all ends. We do plan to have a lot of sort of standardized data. So, so we will be for all the vectors that will be used in the clinical trials. We'll do the same analytical clinical tests on them. We'll do the same you know, toxicology studies on all of them. And we do plan to ultimately make that data available to the public as, as part of the BGTC. We also plan to make available the high throughput screening data that will be carried out as well. So we do want to make as much of this data publicly available as possible. And we designed the consortium in a way to be able to do that. And I think the fact that we're specifically focusing for these trials on diseases that are of, are of no commercial interest by definition really facilitates that kind of data sharing because these are, these are you know, disease of no commercial interest means that the companies aren't planning to make money from this. And I think it was designed that way intentionally. So we very much think that greater data sharing that benefits the whole gene therapy field is an important feature of, of the BGTC. Ultimately, the consortium's clinical trials could inform a playbook of best practices and standardized processes to help facilitate the rapid development and distribution of gene therapy treatments.
Marx will unpack his vision of what this will look like. Right. So it's it's interesting. So many times, just just so we understand, gene therapies rely on currently many of them rely on uh, viral vectors. Those viral vectors are made in cells, and there are different ways of growing those cells. When you're making small batches of these gene therapies, these cells can be grown in essentially small batches in a standard manner in a research laboratory. The, the problem is that one, when one wants to scale up somewhat, even for <laughs> numbers of individuals that aren't that large, and one wants to transfer to a commercial process that doesn't use those traditional incubators that are in academic laboratories, they use bioreactors, which is kind of more industry standard. And sometimes that transfer of technology of going from, uh, in one case, what's called adherent cell culture to uh, suspension culture is just not something that's made easily for a variety of reasons. And so by having a playbook of how to make that transfer by using certain steps, that may help move things along in the future. And that's just one of many, that's just one example of many different aspects that you could potentially address with a, uh, with a playbook or cookbook. So the, the, the trials will probably be done in a variety of different places, hopefully though, according to kind of a common playbook. And the idea is to try to leverage things like Bayesian designs of, for clinical trials to minimize the number of individuals who need to be in those trials. The idea there is obviously before you've treated any individual with uh, a gene therapy, you don't really know at all whether it will work. But if you treat somebody with that gene therapy and they get all better, well, you have a much better probability going into treating your next, when you calculate that, you have a better probability when you calculate that going into the next person that there might be a response. And, and if, you, if you essentially continually reassess, at a certain point, uh, you actually probably will cross a boundary where you probably have an effective therapy. And so that's the kind of idea. And I think we're still ideating over <laughs> what these uh, exactly what these trials will look like. They might be different for different diseases because the outcomes for different genetic diseases are different. In some cases, there are genetic diseases where the outcomes are remarkable. One of them, for instance, spinal muscular atrophy type 1, which is a more common one that's not being addressed by this, but just as an example, it's, it's an alive or dead phenomena after a few years. That's a pretty, pretty stark outcome. But there are other disorders where uh, there are neurologic diseases that take a long time to actually cause uh, the debilitating symptoms. And so what you have to look at is other endpoints and so there, it can be a little more challenging, and there'll be work done to see how we can look at other types of endpoints to understand whether the therapies are working. So I, I think different designs for, you know, fit for purpose here will be explored, and that, that's part of the, the, the goal of this consortium. Thank you for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please follow us on your favorite podcast app or listen to more at governmentciomedia.com. Until next time. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. 
For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris and Adam Patterson. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.